Amen. Please be seated. And if you would, please turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading this morning, which is taken from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. Again, our scripture reading this morning is Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. And then our sermon passage uh, takes us back to 1 Samuel, this time chapter 20. And uh, I said in the bulletins that it would be verses 1 to 17. But I made a, a, a command decision in the field to change that to verse 23. So we're going to be making our way to verse 23 of 1 Samuel chapter 20. Again, Galatians 3, 15 to 18. That's our scripture reading. Reading. And our sermon passage is 1 Samuel 20, verses 1 to 23. Brothers and sisters, I remind you, as always, that this is the word of the Lord. This is the Lord speaking to you. He speaks with his voice. He speaks the truth with a capital T. And it is worthy of your full attention. Galatians 3, 15 to 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I meant. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now turning to 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 to 23. Then David fled from Nioth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon. And I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, Kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. 
And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon. And you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the young man saying, go, find the arrows. If I say to the young man, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you, come, then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we've heard your word read. And we pray that by your blessing, it will sink deeply into our minds, that it will invade our hearts, that it will permeate our being. We pray, dear Lord, that for any who may have doubts about your word, that you would help us to trust it and to know that it is yours, that it indeed belongs to you, that it is what you have spoken. We pray now for the teaching of your word, the preaching of it that you would be with us, that you would guide us in all understanding, that you would bless us with wisdom. We pray that your spirit would illumine our minds, that he would give us understanding. We pray, dear Lord, that, that you would do so for the purpose of your glory, so that the more that we know about you, the more that we understand about your love and your faithfulness, that we, O oh Lord, would in turn worship you and glorify you all the more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Promises are like pie crusts, right? They're made to be broken, or so the saying goes. Now, it's most certainly true that promises are broken all of the time. We are in an election cycle, and I know that there are those out there who are keeping track of all of the promises of the politicians who are running for office, and maybe, just maybe, we can cut through the chatter at some point after the election, sometime next year or the years following, and we can hold some of these politicians to account. I don't know that that will happen, but just maybe it would happen. Everyone here is either the victim of broken promises or the breaker of them, or, in truth, probably both. We make promises. We vow to other people that we'll do this and that, and, and then we forget, or we forget. 
We conveniently let those promises go. But that doesn't mean that promises are in fact meant to be broken. But the keeping of promises, it appears, is all too rare. And that's why we celebrate fidelity. That's why we respect those who keep their word. That's why when people hit their 50th wedding anniversary, we throw parties for them. Because we who've been around long enough, we who've had a few years in marriage, we understand what a feat that is to make it to the golden anniversary. Now, God is someone who keeps His promises. But it is precisely because our experience is full of broken promises, broken by ourselves, broken by others, that we have a hard time trusting that anyone, even God, will keep their promises. But remember this, God cannot lie. And so therefore, He cannot break His promises. And so in one sense, it seems that God making a covenant with us would be superfluous, that it would be unnecessary. And yet, as our confession teaches, He does so to accommodate us in our limitations. Westminster Confession of Faith 7 says that we could never have any fruition of God, we could never have any, any relationship with God, any understanding uh, of God as our blessedness and our reward, except by a voluntary condescension on God's part. What in the world does that mean? It means that God freely came down to us. It doesn't mean that He looked down His nose at us from on high. No, He descended to our level and spoke, as it were, to us in baby talk so that we could understand Him. And He has done so, the confession says, He's been pleased to express this voluntary condescension by way of covenants between Himself and mankind. Now, he made a covenant with us before Adam's fall into sin, and he made a covenant with us after our fall into sin. The first covenant is the covenant of works, and the second covenant is the covenant of grace. Now, as we've said, the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, he came down to us freely, and he covenanted with us, giving promises of blessing for obedience and curses for disobedience. Now, in our passage this morning, we find what we might call, perhaps somewhat generously, the second administration of the covenant that Jonathan made with David back in chapter 18. When Jonathan first made the covenant with David, his father Saul had not yet attempted to kill David. And so, in a sense, that covenant was an easy one. Jonathan's neck, David's neck, their, their necks, their lives weren't on the line at that point. They were the closest of friends, but their friendship had not yet been tested but of course that changed very shortly after when in chapter 18, verse 11, Saul tried to kill David with his spear. And so the covenant that Jonathan and David had made with one another, it put Jonathan's life on the line as well as David's. The new administration of the covenant, or maybe better, the, the renewal of the covenant, we might look at it that way between Jonathan and David in our passage, it will put the covenant, or this friendship rather, to the test. As we work our way through the sermon this morning, I'd ask you to consider this, to keep this thought in front of you. Just as with David and Jonathan, God's covenant with us is irrevocably, it irrevocably binds us to himself, no matter how severely it is tested. Just as with David and Jonathan, God's covenant with us irrevocably binds us to himself, no matter how severely it is tested. 
The sermon is divided into three parts. The first, David's dilemma. The second, continuing the covenant. And the third, producing the plan. The first point, David's dilemma. The second, continuing the covenant. And the third, producing the plan. So let's look at the first point for a few moments, David's dilemma. As we saw in chapter 19, David had fled uh, to Nioth in Ramah. That's where Samuel was. And when Saul heard that he was hiding there, first he sent his messengers, his messengers, we realized that these were assassins, he sent them to kill David. And then when that failed, Saul himself went to kill David. But just as with his messenger, Saul was thwarted by the power of God when he began to prophesy as he came near these prophets who were with Samuel. And he could do nothing else. He was immobilized. He, he, was, he was transfixed, apparently. And so it seems that David now takes advantage of Saul's indisposition and he flees uh, from Nioth and went to Jonathan in Saul's court at Gibeah. So now he's back at Saul's place. Saul's it probably wasn't a palace or, or anything like that, but he had a court there. And David goes back and he finds Jonathan there and he tells Jonathan about Saul's desire, his renewed desire to kill David. He says in verse 1 of our passage, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Now Jonathan was not aware of his father's desire, his renewed desire to kill David. He knew that he had been. But the last words that his father had told Jonathan in chapter 19, verse 6, were this, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Jonathan, for some reason, perhaps he was a bit naive, but he's confident that his father would keep this promise, or at least if he had decided not to keep the promise not to kill David, that, that Saul would have let Jonathan know. Unfortunately for Saul, promises were like pie crusts. The dilemma for David was that as a member of the king's court, he was expected to attend all of the important events that took place in the court. And the next day was the new moon, and the king would hold a feast, as he always did on those new moons, for which David had to be present. And so David had come to the one that he knew he could trust to enlist his help. And despite Jonathan's... His naivete, despite the fact that he doesn't quite believe that his, his father Saul is back to wanting to kill David, he convinces Jonathan in verse 3 that Saul is in fact continuing in his quest to kill him. And Jonathan promises in verse 4 that he will help David in whatever way David asks him. He doesn't say to David, I'll help as, if I can. I'll help you as, as, as much as I can. He says, whatever you ask of me that I will do. And then David tells Jonathan in verse 5 about the dilemma that, that David is facing. He has to be at this feast, but he can't be at this feast because he thinks that Saul is continuing in his efforts, his plot to kill him. And so David needs Jonathan to cover for him. But he also needs Jonathan to get a sense from Saul whether or not he is still plotting to kill David, despite the fact that God had clearly stopped him in his most recent attempt. David, it seems, is holding out hope that maybe, just maybe, the Lord thwarting Saul killing David at Nioth. The, the Lord causing Saul to, to, to essentially become immobilized as he, he fell into this prophesying uh, uh, ability that maybe Saul would have been convinced not to, to pursue David any longer. And so David, he's going to hide in a field. 
But if Saul asks where David is, he instructs, David instructs Jonathan in verse 6 to tell Saul that he had, had to go to Bethlehem for this annual sacrifice that his family had. And then David sets up a test by which Jonathan can determine Saul's intention. Verse 7 says, If he says, Good, it will be well with your servant, that is with David. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. If he becomes angry, then, then Jonathan can know, and, 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 and by, by communicating it to David, he can know that Saul still intends to kill him. And then David immediately reminds Jonathan in verse 8 of the covenant that Jonathan made with David back in chapter 18. He asks Jonathan to deal kindly with him. But then he goes on to say, But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to the Father? In other words, David is willing to admit that he may possibly be deserving of death. He's, he's willing to at least concede the possibility that Saul has a reason to kill him. And maybe Jonathan knows that reason, or maybe Jonathan will find out that reason. And so... David would rather fall at the hand of his friend than the hand of his enemy. If that's the case, he wants Jonathan to kill him instead of Saul. But Jonathan refuses to do such a thing, and then he promises in verse 9 that he would assuredly tell David if he finds out that Saul is still plotting to kill him. But how will Jonathan communicate to David what, that Saul is still planning to kill him? That's David's question in verse 10. Before Jonathan answers David's question, Jonathan says in verse 11, Come, let us go down into the field. David finds himself on the horns of a dilemma. But David knows that he has a faithful friend who will deliver him. And that brings us to the second point of the sermon, continuing the covenant. When they arrive at the field, Jonathan reassures David in verse 12, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? You see, David, David's plan, his request, it had a flaw. He was asking Jonathan only to let him know if Saul intended to kill him. But what if Saul killed Jonathan? And the way in which David is to find out about Saul's plots against him, it's taken away. David has no way to, to know. And so Jonathan tells David in verses 12 and 13 that he will alert David in either case, whether Saul wishes David well or wishes him harm. And in these verses, verses 12 and 13, Jonathan calls on God to be his witness. He calls on God to hold him accountable and then he calls on God to penalize him if he betrays David. Jonathan understands. He knows that David is placing his life in Jonathan's hands. And so Jonathan invokes God's judgment, his wrath, if he fails to keep his promise. And then Jonathan acknowledges that things are about to get serious for him too. When he interceded for David in chapter 19, he did so by speaking well of David. He commended David to Saul. He, 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 uh, he also convinced his father not to commit this great evil, a great sin against David. But he tells David in, in our passage in verse 14, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. Jonathan knows that by spying for David, he is turning traitor on his father, and for that he may well be killed. But this is part of keeping the covenant that he originally made with David back in chapter 18. The stakes are high. 
And Jonathan knows, he understands, he believes that he can't just break the covenant that he made with David now that things have become inconvenient for him, now that things have gotten dangerous for him. Jonathan continues in verse 15. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Don't cut off your steadfast love to me and to my house, he's saying. Jonathan understands that the covenant that God has made with David, he, he understands even more fully than David does that this is a forever covenant. That, that God is not going to, to punish David the way that he punished Saul. Although Jonathan had initiated the covenant with David in chapter 18, he now asks David for reassurances to him. Jonathan knows that God's favor is upon David. He knows that David will be the next king of Israel and that his house will reign. Jonathan knows this. He knows that, that he, the, the crown prince, as the son of Saul, will not be the next king. And so he asks David to remember him and to remember his house. And David does. After Jonathan's death, which happens in, at the end, chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, David takes in Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 9. And if you read the following chapters in 2 Samuel, after chapter 9, you will realize that David did so even though Mephibosheth will prove to be less than loyal to him. David kept his promise to Jonathan to his own hurt, to the detriment of his own house. As much as Jonathan loves David and David loves Jonathan and it will be borne out that these two love one another, they both need assurances that neither will betray the other. And that's what a covenant does. Verses 16 and 18 describe these assurances that they gave to one another out of their deep friendship. And they demonstrate that a covenant is not merely a slip of paper. That, that's how many people think of covenants today, just like promises. There's something to be broken. You hear people say this all the time, especially, unfortunately, folks who, who are living together. They don't, they don't want to get married. I don't need a, I don't need a slip of paper to, to prove my, my love to, to this other person. But a covenant is far more than merely a slip of paper. Now, to be sure, not every promise reaches the level of covenantal commitment, but our lax attitudes toward keeping our promises certainly contribute to a low view of the few covenants that we are asked to keep in this life. Marriage is one. Those vows that, that you take if you're married. Loans, they're a form of a covenant. And people will... will will willingly walk out of the commitments that they have to loans. Membership vows in your church are not taken seriously. Humanity's low view of covenantal commitment, though, it causes God's covenantal commitment, His covenant faithfulness, to stand in stark contrast. When everyone else is tripping over the, themselves to break the promises that they've made to you, God will not. He won't. He can't. As one commentator put it, 
in talking about this passage, he said, don't forget what David has taught you. In confusion and trouble, trouble, you take yourself to the one who has made a covenant with you. He is the only recourse in uncertainty. Now, I know that there are those among you, among us, right now, and I'm certain that, that each one of us at some point in our walk with Christ that we go through a time of uncertainty, lacking assurance, wondering, am I really saved? How can I be saved? And this often comes about because, because you're being honest with yourself. It's the product of, of, of scrutinizing your own sin. And we folks in the OPC, we folks in the Reformed confessional Presbyterian world, we, we tend to take God's law very seriously. And one of, the, one of the, the less than beneficial consequences of that can be for some, if not all of us, it can be this morbid introspection. We start to look at our sin. We start to look at how far short we fall in, in our keeping of what we regard as the obligations that God has put on us. We hear the, the Ten Commandments read and, and we think, what a failure I am. Why even try? How can I be a Christian? I, I told you I'd remind you of this again. And I'm going to remind you of this again. But I'm going to remind you of this right now. One of your primary duties, one of your primary obligations as a Christian, one of the commandments that you need to primarily obey if, if, if you can do such a thing, is keeping the duty to remind yourself of the faithfulness of the Lord. Of His covenant faithfulness. So sure, you may be one of those people who can't help but look away from your sinfulness and the ways that you violate His law. You've broken not only the first commandment and the tenth commandment, but all of the commandments in between. Whether it's in, uh, in actuality or whether it's in intent... You may not have broken the letter of the law, but you've broken the spirit of the law. But you have an obligation, a heightened obligation, if that is you, all the more to remind yourself of God's mercies and His grace and His love for you. That is one of your primary duties as a Christian. If you are obsessed with looking at your sin, of, of picking open that scab then you better be obsessed with applying the balm of God's covenantal mercy in Christ Jesus. You have to be. That's your duty. Well, that leads us to the third point of the sermon, producing the plan. After they have renewed their covenantal commitment to one another, Jonathan tells David how he's going to go about communicating Saul's intentions to David. And verses 18 to 23 give the details of how in an age where signal fires were about the only way to communicate information quickly over a great distance, Jonathan would communicate to David. Now, they're not that far apart, as we'll find out later next time. They were within hailing distance of one another. But they had to have a plausible reason for why Jonathan's out there and he can give David, who's hiding this message, this signal. And so on the third day, David is to go to the place that he had hidden himself. He's to set himself up beside a heap of stones, and he's to wait there. And Jonathan is going to shoot three arrows to the side of the heap. 
And it's a little bit unclear in our passage. It becomes clearer in the next, toward the end of chapter 20, where, where you realize he's sending this servant boy out. He's standing in the field. He's out somewhere. And Jonathan is then, this requires a great deal of trust. No doubt Jonathan was a superb archer and had great and tremendous aim. Jonathan is going to shoot the arrows. And, and, if, and if Jonathan has good news to report to David then the arrows are going to fall on the near side of this servant boy, between the servant boy and Jonathan. And Jonathan will shout out, everything's okay, or the, the arrow's on this side of you, come get it and bring it back. And that means that David can safely come to the court of Saul. But if Jonathan shoots the arrow and it lands on the far side of the servant boy, on, on the opposite side of the servant boy from Jonathan, then Jonathan will shout out and say, go back there and find the arrows. And that, that signals to David that he has to hightail it out of there. And, and you probably are aware of, of what happens. Now, even if you haven't read the chapter, maybe you don't remember exactly how it all ends, you probably can guess where things are going to go, right? You've seen what Saul has been trying to do. And we'll get to how everything works out next time. But just looking at this first half of chapter 20, it's clear that the author of 1 Samuel, at the very least, he wanted to communicate to his readers the love and the commitment that Jonathan and David had for one another. He wants to show the level of commitment that they have. Now, we live in an age, unfortunately, where the kind of friendship that David and Jonathan have would be mocked. Men have a, and boys even have a, have a hard time in our day and age having close friendships with one another, get mocked by other people. Worse, it might be assumed that the relationship was of a non-platonic uh, nature and if they were alive today. And in fact, there are many today who assume that David and Jonathan were more than just friends. But that is because our culture assumes that everything between people must be sexual in nature. These first 23 verses are all talk between Jonathan and David. There's been very little action. That David goes to Jonathan at the court of Saul. They move out to the field from the court where they can talk perhaps a little more in private. But the talk isn't just mere words. The talk, the covenantal commitment that is expressed in the first half of chapter 20 leads to the action in the second half of chapter 20. The covenant which came about because of their mutual loves, love for and friendship with one another causes Jonathan to put his life on the line for David and David to do the same for Jonathan. The promises that we make are not mere words. And if you are someone who makes promises thinking that they're mere words, then it would be best for you to shut your mouth and to not make promises because there's a chance you'll be held accountable for those promises that you made and broke. These men called down curses from God upon their heads if either failed to keep his part of the commitment. And we, they left that place when the action commenced. After these words had been said, when Jonathan went back to his father's court to, to await his return, and David went to his place of hiding, they both knew because of these words that they had spoken, because of the covenantal commitments that they had made, they knew with certainty that the other would keep his promise. 
And each did, even to his own hurt. That's what a covenant means. A covenant is not mere words on a piece of paper that you can throw into the fire and be done with. And this is the same with the covenant of grace that God has made with His people, with one exception. And the exception is not that God put in a loophole to get out of the deal. God is not a covenant breaker. But God knows that we are. And He knew that going into the covenant. The covenant of grace was not made with us, uh, that God made with us, wasn't made to force Him to keep His end of the bargain. And it wasn't made to force us to keep our end of the bargain either. God made the covenant with us knowing full well that He would keep both ends of the agreement, His and ours. And He would keep our end of the covenant in the person of Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. Paul makes an argument from the lesser to the greater in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. In other words, how much more then will God keep the covenant He has made with us? Because of the covenant that Jonathan and David made with each other, each of them could part ways knowing that the other one had his back. They could rest knowing that the other would do all within his power to keep harm from befalling the other. How much more with God, brothers and sisters? God made a covenant with you, and God keeps the covenant with you. Even though you fail, even though you break it, God is faithful. All of God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. The reason that you can believe God is because Jesus lived and he died and he rose again for you. All of his promises have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now we ought, out of a sense of Christian duty, we ought to strive to be obedient to God. But we need to recognize that we don't fall out of covenant favor with God anytime we break His commands. He loves us with an everlasting love. He will not break the covenant that He has made with us. And we have a perfect human example of this in the covenant that Jonathan and David made with one another. Even after Jonathan's death, David kept the covenant that he had made with Jonathan. And so I'll tell you one last time, brothers and sisters, your main duty as a Christian, your primary path of obedience is to daily, hourly, by the minute, if you need to, remind yourself of the covenant mercies of the Lord. And if you can do that, if you can do that, then the various other forms of obedience will come far more naturally to you. But start with that. And when you fail to do even that, remind yourself of the covenant mercies of the Lord. He will never fail you, even though you fail Him every single day. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Let us pray.
Our gracious God, we thank you for your covenant faithfulness. We thank you, dear Lord, that you keep your end of the bargain and ours. And we thank you that there is nothing that we can add to Christ's perfect keeping of the covenant for us. Because as the God-man, as the second Adam, he is our representative head. And so he represented us throughout his life, especially during his years of public ministry. He represented us on the cross when he died. He represented us when he was raised from the dead as the first fruits of our own resurrection. We thank you that you have kept both ends of the bargain perfectly. We thank you that you have seen fit in your grace and according to your mercy to include us in this covenant, even though we've done nothing to keep it. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would fill our hearts with gratitude, that you would bring to mind all of those instances of your covenantal faithfulness, the ways that you have kept it for us. We pray this all in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would now please turn to our hymn of response, hymn number 400. And